Our lesson this evening is the tenth lesson of this weekend and the sixth lesson today. I feel sorry for you all. I imagine most of you are tired, your brains are full, and you can only absorb so much information. Unfortunately, the ideas I have been asked to explore are a challenging mix of philosophy, ethics, theology, and deep human emotion. So good luck. I just pray that you bear with me this evening and that in the end you will have gleaned something useful from this lesson. We recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. I was born a little over seven years after that event. And as far as I can recall, the moon landing has always been considered a monumental achievement, an example of how human innovation and an undaunted spirit of exploration compress the boundaries of our understanding to higher planes. This was the general spirit we Americans felt back in July as we reflected 50 years in our history. However, I recently learned the Apollo space program was not always viewed in such a favorable light. Twenty years after Apollo 11 touched down, 77% of Americans thought it was worth it. But in 1979, only 47% of those surveyed felt that way. During the decade of the 1960s, 45 to 60% of Americans believed the government was spending way too much money on the space program. Compare that number to a recent poll conducted during this golden anniversary of Apollo 11 when 45% of Americans say that there has never been an event that has made them so proud to be an American. In hindsight, we see public opinion has certainly shifted. What makes all this more intriguing to me is an anecdote a brother in Christ shared a few years ago. He told me that his grandparents believed the space program and the landing on the moon were a complete waste of time and resources because they defied God's design. The Lord has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. To go to the moon meant stepping beyond the limitations God had imposed on humanity, and therefore landing on the moon would never happen. He shared this as a cautionary example of how interpreting God's word in a particular way can lead to conclusions at odds with facts. I appreciated his sentiment at the time and thus dive into the next however long this is going to take with a sense of real unease. Technology is reshaping our world at a dizzying pace. When I was in high school, we wrote letters to stay in touch with someone from another state. Calling them was very expensive due to this thing called long distance. And kids, if you don't know what long distance is, ask your parents. But by 2017, when I was last in the Philippines, I held several video chats with my wife and children. 
on the other side of the world. An advance in technology that was unavailable in 2007 and clear back in 1994 was a regular form of communication only found in science fiction. As others have noted, what was once science fiction is now just becoming science. Though communication is the most noticeable sign of progress to all of us, technology is compelling rapid developments in numerous fields, including human genetics. We began mapping the human genome in 1990, and the project was completed in 2003, having mapped approximately 92% of the human DNA strand. By 2009, we had narrowed it down even further with a little more than 300 gaps remaining. And in June of this year, only 89 unresolved gaps in the sequence remained. This incredible achievement was only possible through the use of computers. It would take 50 years to type the human genome at a rate of 60 words per minute for eight hours a day. 50 years. A single strand of human DNA has three billion base parts. Three gigabytes of computer data storage space is required to store the entire strand. If unwound and tied together, the strands of DNA in one cell would stretch almost six feet, but would only be 50 trillionths of an inch wide. If all the DNA in your body was put end to end, it would reach to the sun and back over 600 times. That's 100 trillion times 6 feet divided by 92 million miles. Incredible. The mapping of the human genome and an increasingly more accurate understanding of DNA has certainly had its positive effects. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project, was compelled by the evidence in DNA to forsake atheism and come to a belief in God. Anthony Flew, one of the most prominent atheist apologists in the latter part of the 20th century, became agnostic, sort of bordering on deism, because the information in DNA demands a source. It seems fitting in a universe created by the Logos, the Word, that all life is built by 64 three-letter words. In DNA, we have one of our strongest arguments in favor of the existence of God. There are, however, potentially dangerous uses for this recently uncovered information. In 2013, scientists developed a technique known as CRISPR-Cas9. This procedure allowed them to extract, extract pieces of the human genome that we don't want, such as genes that cause disease, and paste back in healthy genetic material. In 2017, a group of scientists used the CRISPR-Cas9 method to successfully remove from human embryos a piece of faulty DNA that causes heart disease in certain families. The development of CRISPR-Cas9, which is more broadly known as gene editing or gene manipulation, this development has been met with a mix of adulation, 
caution, and dread. For some, gene editing has roused utopian visions of a world freed from the shackles of sickness, aging, and death. Eden restored by human ingenuity. At the opposite extreme resides Aldous Huxley's dystopian nightmare, Brave New World, wherein he imagines a population in the year 2540 grown in vats, where the gestating fetuses and babies are tended by workers in white overalls, their hands gloved with a pale corpse-colored rubber under white dead lights. Most of the scientific community, though, falls in between these two extremes. When a Chinese doctor claimed to have genetically modified two human embryos to make them resistant to HIV, the worldwide scientific community recoiled at the ethics violation. The Chinese government called for an immediate investigation. You see, the scientific community sees enhancement of an embryo which is what this Chinese doctor claims to have done. The scientific community views enhancement as unethical. The pejorative designer babies is often thrown around in bioethics circles. But applying this method as a means of therapy to correct a genetic disorder, for example, is seen as ethical and for some a moral imperative. Removing the blight of cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease or Down syndrome or a host of other debilitating hereditary disorders is more than just enticing intellectually. It's an act of mercy. At present, most countries have not yet legislated on genetic modification in human reproduction But those that have, have all banned it. The idea of using this technology for human reproduction is largely rejected in principle by the medical research community. Even among scientists, although the potential is enticing, even among scientists, gene editing is widely seen as a Pandora's box. In March 2015, a team of scientists warned in the science journal Nature that genetic manipulation, even if focused on improving health, could start us down a path towards non-therapeutic genetic enhancements. Designer babies. Because of these widely held reservations, Ronald Green, a bioethicist at Dartmouth College, does not foresee the widespread use of CRISPR-Cas9 in the next two decades. However, Green does see gene editing appearing on the menu eventually. He says, it is unavoidably in our future, and I believe that it will become one of the central foci of our social debates later in this century and the century beyond. There is, however, in my view, a more sinister reason why the scientific community looks at gene editing with a skeptical eye. Henry Greeley, 
a bioethicist from Stanford University, observed, almost everything you can accomplish by gene editing, you can accomplish by embryo selection. Prospective parents select their child from a group of embryos produced by in vitro fertilization. The selected embryo is implanted. The rest are discarded. This is known as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or by the acronym PGD. PGD is already in use by couples who know that they carry genes for specific inherited diseases so that they can identify embryos that do not have those genes. Some believe PGD should be implemented broadly for the future good of the human race. For example, Julian Savalescu, an Australian philosopher who holds the You a Hero Chair in Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford, says this, couples or single reproducers should select the child of the possible children they could have, who is expected to have the best life, or at least as good a life as the others, based on the relevant available information. Gradually, unfavorable genes would be weeded out, thus strengthening the human race. Hereditary diseases would be removed. Genetic markers of intelligence would be prioritized. If swastikas and gas chambers come to mind, you're not alone. Professor Savalescu's proposal is another form of eugenics. The science of improving human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable heritable characteristics. For the time being, using an embryo's genetic information to predict what sort of person he or she will become is far more complicated than some would have you believe. Just this last week, the Wall Street Journal reported further discovery of genetic links to homosexual attraction, but that the genetic links are far from determinative. Contrary to conventional thinking, No scientific inquiry to date has conclusively discovered a gay gene. It's just not out there. Scientists and advocates quoted by the Wall Street Journal were once again forced to admit that nurture has as much or more to do with same-sex attraction as nature. Just as we have no scientific reason to believe in a gay gene, we have no reason to believe there exists an IQ gene or a musical gene or an athletic gene. But that's not the case with these rare and nasty hereditary genetic diseases. They can be pinpointed to a specific genetic mutation. So the possibility of avoiding those through embryo selection or fixing them through gene editing remains very much on the table. Unlike bird and beast, fish and fowl, 
insect, amphibian, reptile, or crustacean. Man was created in the image of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All ethical and moral conversations we have should assume this value. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Our universe had a beginning, and in its beginning, the earth was without form and void. This, in my mind, represents raw potential. Over the course of six days, God organizes that potential through the spoken word. And he's designed us to do the exact same. What's the first thing Adam does following his creation? He names the animals. He brings order to potential through communication. Why? Because he's created in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We find a second element expressed in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. God gave us dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God presides over creation. He has given in his final act of creation, man and woman, he has given us dominion over the other creatures on earth. Stay there in verse 26. We find a third element to being made in the image of God. God says, let us make man in our image. In the process of creation, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit are all present. And yet they are one. A triune God, what we might call unity in plurality or a compound unity. In like manner, Paul says, we are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Genesis 2.7 says we are spirit, God breathed into us. Man becomes a living being or a living soul. Of course, the body is made of the dust of the earth. Spirit, soul, and body. Later in chapter 2, God gives man permission to eat freely of every tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The command reveals that man, like God, is a sovereign individual, able to chart his own course, make his own choices by free will. There are other aspects to being created in God's image, but these four seem to have the most relevance for my thoughts this evening. Even though we're created in God's image, we should not think for a moment that we are unlimited because being created in God's image is inherently limited. Think about this for a moment. God first created the potential. He first created the heavens and the earth And then he gave order to it through the spoken word. Since we're made in God's image, we are limited to working with the potential that already exists. 
To build a house, I must work with the materials that already exist, according to some sort of blueprint or a form of communication. So as a being made in God's image, I can mimic the creative process, but I cannot perfectly replicate it. God gives man dominion over what was created on days 5, 6, and 3. But we don't have dominion over the sun or the moon. Nor do we have dominion over the forces of nature. A point that Jesus drives home with silencing the storms. And of course we don't have dominion over God. So our dominion, such as it is, is inherently limited. Our free will operates within the constraints of the laws that God has set in motion. I can freely choose to jump off a cliff. And as I'm falling, I can choose to live when I hit the ground. But the laws that govern nature supersede my desire to live. My freedom to choose is not absolute. It is bound within a closed system of divine law. John 4.24, Jesus explicitly states what other scriptures had implied, that God's substance is spirit. But we're a composite of body, soul, and spirit. Although we are made of three distinct parts, like God, our bodies weaken us, exposing us to temptation and thereby sickness, aging, and death. So what bearing does all this have on our consideration of gene editing or embryo selection? Well, as I stated earlier, I believe our creation in the image of God and its inherent limitations should shape our perspective on these subjects and our subsequent decisions. Which leads me to three crucial questions. What is the unborn Does the use of this technology undermine our trust in the sovereignty of God? And finally, do the ends justify the means? Let's begin with the question, what is the unborn? Twenty years ago, two astrobiologists wrote a very interesting book called Rare Earth. In that book, they argue complex life in the universe is most likely rare. They were, of course, arguing from a strictly evolutionary point of view, but their conclusions were interesting. The conditions a planet must meet in order to host complex life are numerous. So numerous, in fact, that these two scientists believe there are few planets capable of hosting complex life in the universe. However, we do know from our observations here on Earth that simple life can live and thrive in very harsh conditions. They hypothesized that single-cell organisms probably exist in the inhospitable conditions found on the planets and moons in our solar system and beyond. What would be the headline tomorrow? If NASA announced the discovery of a single-cell organism under the ice of Jupiter's moon Europa, what would be the headline? 
We found life on Europa, right? We found life on Europa. Our first discovery of extraterrestrial life. Why is a single cell organism on Europa considered life? But a single cell organism in the womb of a woman not considered life. When a human sperm merges with a human egg, they form an embryo. A human embryo. A human embryo created according to the design God set in motion. The psalmist writes, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14. Someone might respond, but there's obvious flaws in his design. Flaws that we can correct. But why are those flaws present? The testimony of Genesis 3 is disease and death entered as a consequence for Adam's sin. But the flaws present in an embryo do not negate his or her value as a being made in God's image. There is more to human life than the body. We have been touched by the divine. Whenever we evaluate the use of reproductive assistance technologies, we must first remember who potentially can be affected by our decisions. An embryo, a person, or persons created in the image of God. What is the unborn? That's the unborn. Does the use of this technology undermine our trust in the sovereignty of God? Notice how I worded that. Not does it undermine the sovereignty of God, but does it undermine our trust in the sovereignty of God? In a less technologically advanced time, Jesus went about Galilee and Judea, healing many from ailments which existed from birth and otherwise. This ministry is, of course, depicted in a positive light as evidence of a compassionate God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Thus, it just seems natural to go and do likewise. As we noticed earlier, God gave man dominion over portions of his creation. He also blessed us with intellectual capabilities that allow us to utilize the potential in what he created. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 8 talks of wisdom's role in the creation of the world and implies that God's wisdom is woven all throughout creation. Medical technology is one way we unlock the wisdom God has embedded in creation. Through the application of medical advances, we can either fix or bypass a broken organ or a broken System. For example, someone who's in the early stages of kidney troubles might first receive medication intended to fix the problem. 
If, however, the medication does not work and the problem evolves into some sort of kidney failure, dialysis circumvents the failed organs in order to preserve life. So medical technology allows us to either fix or bypass a broken organ or system. The danger lies in this. Relying on medical technology can lead us down a dangerous path where our faith in God shifts to a faith in medicine. Without question, each of us draws their own line in a different place. Let each be fully persuaded in his mind. However, let us all remember we are made in the image of God. We are not God's. Human ingenuity has taken us far, but man's wisdom is folly to God. We may have dominion, but our dominion is limited. And it seems to me there are realms into which we should not cross. But all this leads me to a more fundamental concern. Our culture is obsessed with the idea that hope for the human race is bound up in technology. 160 years ago, on September 1st and 2nd, 1859, an event known as the Carrington Flare struck Earth. It was a solar flare, one of the largest geomagnetic storms ever recorded. Auroras were seen around the world. They were so bright in the northeastern United States that people could read a newspaper by the aurora's light. Telegraph systems all over Europe and North America failed, in some cases giving telegraph off, uh, operators electric shock. Telegraph pylons threw sparks. Now a similar storm, or a solar storm of similar magnitude, occurred in 2012, but it missed us by nine days. That may sound like a lot, but that's pretty close in astronomical terms. It's like the width of a hair, really. A solar storm of that sort of magnitude occurring today would cause widespread electrical disruptions, blackouts, and damage due to the extended outages of the electrical grid. Do you realize how precarious our reliance on technology really is? All it would take is a solar flare or a rogue nation or a well-organized and funded terrorist group to explode an EMP in our atmosphere and knock all of us back to the virtual dark ages. These rather extreme examples illustrate the tenuous footing on which technology rests. If technology upholds humanity's hope for a better future, then that hope is built on sand. All forms of technology, from communication to transportation to medical, cannot escape the inherent limitations of either the ones who created them or the natural processes to which all of creation is subject. 
we're forced to ask the question, does the use of this technology undermine my trust in God? Am I trusting too much in these things? One final thing to say. Do the ends justify the means? Earlier I mentioned the the, uh, Chinese doctor who genetically modified two human embryos to make them resistant to HIV. In order to achieve this result, countless embryos were destroyed. In all such assisted reproductive technologies, many more embryos are created than are implanted and delivered. The remaining ones, human beings in the embryonic stage, are frozen or destroyed. It is a laudable, noble goal to relieve the suffering of those individuals afflicted with these terrible hereditary diseases. It's an act of compassion for the afflicted and for his or her family. But at what cost? In the name of compassion, some see gene editing or gene selection, embryo selection, as a moral imperative. If something can be done, it must be done. It makes no sense to accept any sort of limitation whatsoever. But at what cost? How many innocent lives have to be sacrificed to achieve this noble end? If what we perceive to be a moral result is achieved by immoral means, is the end truly moral? But someone might say, well, that's just the price we pay for advances in medicine. People die from experimental treatments and techniques all the time. Why should embryos be any different? Is there not a distinction between the one who can voice their consent for a treatment and the one who cannot, is there not a difference between the two? Is it not our responsibility to care for the most vulnerable among us? Is it not the responsibility of parents to preserve and protect the lives that come from their bodies? Furthermore, what sort of lives might we subject these children to? Earlier I mentioned Ronald Green, a bioethicist from Dartmouth College. He warns that gene editing might be accompanied by, quote, serious errors and health problems as unknown genetic side effects in editing children and populations begin to manifest themselves. Given the history of scientific endeavors, this seems like a very likely outcome. And if that's the case, what have we really gained? We've we've corrected one set of genetic problems while inflicting a whole new set on innocent victims. Is that really an act of mercy? Sarah desperately wanted a child. So much so that she gave her servant Hagar to Abraham. A child was born, a child who would have been qualified to receive the inheritance due to Abraham. It was the desired result, but the wrong method. God wanted Abraham and Sarah to trust in him. To trust 
that he was capable of delivering a good outcome. Do the ends really justify the means? What all this reveals, at least to me, what this uncovers are the two questions that are really being debated in our culture these days. Rick mentioned one this morning in his lesson. Is the truth true? That's one. Second is, what is the value of human life? What does it mean to be human? As we've talked this evening, we've been created in the image of God. That makes us different from the corn in the Iowa fields. Makes us different to the hogs in the barns across the state of Iowa, to the cattle in the field, to every other creature in this state that has been modified in some way to make it a better producer. We're different. For that reason, we should treat humanity differently. There are realms into which we should not venture. And I believe that gene editing, gene manipulation, and certainly embryo selection are venturing into domains where we have no right. I was telling some people earlier this evening that gene editing doesn't begin a slippery slope. It's at the end of the slippery slope because a whole lot of bad things have happened already to lead us to that point. And who knows what might be unlocked on the other side. As we draw this to a close this evening, I want to extend the gospel invitation. I know there are people here who are not Christians. I know there are people here who perhaps believe in God, but have not acted on their faith. We want to give you one more opportunity. And as John said earlier this afternoon in his lesson, the opportunity is always available. But we'll extend one more formal opportunity for you to begin your walk with Jesus Christ. If we can help you obey the gospel this evening, please let it be known as we stand and as we sing.